going to invite Ryan to come just now. Uh, if you maybe weren't here last week and you don't know who Ryan is, Ryan is uh, the one who's just been appointed uh, as our uh, latest assistant and we're going to invite Ryan to bring God's word and that's the clicker for later on in case you can't recognise it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's lovely to be back this morning, and can I say a, a huge thank you for how you welcomed uh, Rachel and I last Sunday. It is lovely to be with you, and I'm looking forward to being here over the next uh, three years. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 10. Uh, so if you have the Bible, please turn to page 1015 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're reading from verse 46. This is God's word, and so we can trust it completely. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? And I wonder if Jesus were to ask you that question, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer it? But then again, if we think about it, it's a strange sort of unexpected question for someone like Jesus to be asking. A few weeks ago, I think it was, King Charles came to Northern Ireland. And can you imagine him asking this question? What do you want me to do for you? Imagine the, the table is being cleared and those that are waiting on King Charles, he turns to them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you want me to wash the dishes? Do you want me to take out the rubbish? What do you want me to do for you? Can you see how this is a strange question for someone like Jesus to be asking? Jesus is the creator of the world. He's the king of kings. But here he's asking a question that a servant would ask his master. Once again, he turns upside down what we think a king should act like. And he reminds us that he's a king like no other. He's a servant king who comes and asks, what do you want me to do for you? But before we think about this passage, cast your eye back up to verse 36. Because Jesus has asked this question before to his disciples. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And look at their response. Verse 37, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They want the highest position, they want glory. And really often our hearts are a little bit like this too. We want the, the highest position, we wanna get ahead. I remember when I was at school, we weren't very civilized in, in Market Hill and the bell would ring for dinner time and we would charge across that playground because we wanted the highest position. We wanted to be top of the queue. But actually, it's a symptom of our hearts. Often we don't grow out of this tendency. We want to make a name for ourselves. 
Some of us will use our wealth to grab some glory. Some of us will use our beauty, our sporting ability, our cleverness. Others will use even serving in the church to make a name for themselves. With this tendency that we want to be on top and so often we just want God to play along with our agenda. We want glory and we try to rob God of his glory. But here Jesus comes to this blind man called Bartimaeus and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus knows his lowly position and he just asks for mercy. Some people want the top position, but others recognize they're in the lowest position before God and just need mercy. And so in contrast to the disciples who don't really get it yet, Bartimaeus models to us what it is to follow Jesus, the servant king. And the first thing we see this morning is we need mercy. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And if we know ourselves, we should say we need mercy because we're way more like Bartimaeus than we think. For many of us, yes, in, in physical and social status, we don't share much in common with Bartimaeus. But in the gospel, according to Mark, a sight has a double meaning. There's sight in terms of seeing physically, but there's also sight in, in, term, in spiritual terms, in the sense of seeing things clearly or, or getting it. So if you look back at Mark chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Jesus has said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you see how Jesus connects perceiving and understanding with sight and eyes and seeing? And then straight away afterwards in Mark chapter 8, he also heals a, a blind man and he does it in two stages. At first, this blind man can partially see. He can't see fully, but he can partially see and, and, and then he can fully see. And, and this story is here. It's to represent to us the disciples who in and around this story, they, they can't understand fully what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, that he is gonna suffer and so in Mark's gospel, we see sight and seeing, and it's related to perceiving and understanding. And therefore, when we come to this story, we're to know this is about more than physical sight, and we're to know that we're more like Bartimaeus than we think. Without Jesus stepping in, we're poor and, and lowly and spiritually blind. We can't see clearly who Jesus is, but, but we also can't even understand or see ourselves for who we really are. Without Jesus, we have this much higher view of ourselves, but it's ultimately a distorted view. It's a little like those, you know, those mirrors in, in fun houses, you know, the sort I'm talking about where you look into and you see your reflection and it's all distorted. Maybe you're super, super skinny in it and super tall or, or really, really large in the reflection. And it's all distorted. It's a little bit like that. We have a distorted sense of who we really are without Jesus stepping in and opening our eyes. Because when we compare ourselves to Jesus and his perfection and his perfect standards, we discover we're a lot more like Bartimaeus than we think. We need mercy. And we're more desperate than we think too. Think of Bartimaeus. He's pretty helpless. He's 
on the roadside. He's begging for the mercy of those passing by. He hears Jesus is coming and he knows some things about Jesus. And he concludes, he knows who Jesus is and he starts begging. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people tell him to be quiet, but he doesn't care. He's desperate for mercy. He cries all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He's from the family line of King David. He's God's promised rescuer king who is coming to restore and rescue God's people. And therefore he knows that that Jesus is the king who can meet his need, who can show him mercy and recover his sight and save him. And so he cries, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He gets it. He knows his lowly position and he knows he needs mercy. But often our problem is that we don't acknowledge that we need mercy. We're like our own part-time defense barristers. We're trying to present our case before God that we're blameless. But we tend to think that an average is good enough. I used to have one of those apps for monitoring my driving, you know, for car insurance and it would break up my driving into acceleration, cornering, speeding, and, and braking. And, and you know, in theory, you could do not so well, creep ever so slightly above the speed limit, and, and then, you know, but do better in some of the other categories, and then it would average out okay. And I think sometimes we think that obedience to God is a little bit like that. Sure, we're not doing well in, in that kind of area, but it averages out okay in the end. But actually, if we know who God is, he's a God of perfection, he's a God of justice, he's a, he's a God whose standards are perfect and he knows us completely, he sees our imperfect lives and he will judge. But here's the good news. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And we said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the second thing we discover is King Jesus meets our need. I imagine many pass by, they maybe look to the ground and don't give him a second glance. But here King Jesus is surrounded by this great crowd and he's on his way to the most significant event in world history, the cross, and yet he takes the time to stop with Bartimaeus. Uh, To go back to the image of King Charles, uh, 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 this is like him on his way to the coronation and he's surrounded by a great crowd and he hears a blind man begging on the roadside and they pull over and he calls for him to come and he comes to him. Wouldn't that be a a great story? And yet here is an even greater story and I want us to see how great this story is. The King of Kings, surrounded by a great crowd, is on his way to the cross and yet Jesus takes the time to stop There's the hustle and and the bustle of the crowd and and there's one man's desperate cry is heard. He's on his way to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross and he's concerned for one individual. His actions, they stand in stark contrast to the other disciples. I I don't know if you remember, but back in Mark chapter eight, uh, the disciples, they're also on the roads, but they're having this childish debate. They're arguing over who is the greatest And here Jesus shows us what true greatness is. As he humbly serves, we catch a glimpse of the tenderness of his heart towards those that suffer. And Jesus hasn't changed any. He still takes the time, he still hears our prayers, he listens. And 
And here is a timeless truth for when we walk through the darkest valleys that Jesus calls us to come to him, that we can take hearts and know that he is the king who meets our need. But what, what does he does? What, what, what is it he does? What did he do for Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus cries for mercy. Jesus hears his cry and he responds in mercy. He says to Bartimaeus, verse 52, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. King Jesus meets his need, he's shown mercy, his sight is recovered. And can you imagine it? For the first time he sees other people, he sees the beauty of creation, but most of all, he sees his king face to face. And you know, Jesus still delights in showing mercy to those who come to him. And one day we have this hope that we will see our king face to face. But how can all this take place? Well, the answer is found in, in verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see how it all takes place? We receive mercy because Jesus gave his life for us. Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you're not yet a Christian and, and I don't know what you believe about Christianity, uh, but often people will think that, that Christianity is about what we can do for God. Uh, we keep going to church so that we can keep in with God. We try to be kind to others so that, God, that we can merit God's kindness towards us. Uh, we, we serve in church, but only so that God will serve our own interests. But actually, what we see here in this verse is that Christianity is all about a king who first serves us. He gave his life for us. And his death was a new normal death, but it served as a ransom. It was a public payment to set us free from the death we deserve. And we've re rejected God. We've, uh, we've decided to go our own way. We, we'll take all the good gifts of life in God's world, but we, we don't want God. And we try to run our lives and build our own little kingdoms without God. And we deserve judgment for it, we, for our rebellion. But for those of us that have faith in Jesus, he died for us. Jesus suffered the, the judgment of God and, and he was with no mercy. He suffered the full blow of God's judgment so that we would receive mercy. Jesus was shown no mercy so that we would receive endless mercy. And so we need mercy and the good news is King Jesus meets our need. And then finally, more briefly, in response, we follow him. In some sense, Bartimaeus is the model believer. Verse 52, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Bartimaeus is shown mercy and then he follows Jesus. And, and really this should be the pattern of our lives too. He's first served us, now we serve and love and follow Jesus. But what does that look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like if you notice in verse 52 to follow Jesus along the road? What is this road? What does it look like? To answer that question, do you remember where Jesus is heading? Back in chapter eight, Jesus predicted his suffering, death, and resurrection. And again in chapter nine, he predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection. 
And again in chapter 10, he predicts his suffering, his death and resurrection. Three times in three chapters, Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and he's gonna die on a cross. Jesus says this three times. He's going to the cross and now Bartimaeus follows him. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Dieter Bonhoeffer said this. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he was a German pastor who opposed Hitler and, and the Nazis. And he wrote this when he was in prison. He said, the cross is led on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit the suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. Bonhoeffer said this, and one day he was eventually executed, but he realized that following Jesus involved service and sacrifice and cost. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. This passage comes at the end of the, these three chapters and, and Jesus has been talking about his death and his suffering and his resurrection and he's wanting his followers to know that this is the way he is going and this is the life of followers of Jesus. But what might that look like for us? Here's some suggestions, but for some of us, it, it, it might mean making costly sacrifices, choosing not to maybe move to that fancier house so that we can continue to support a, a local or global mission. For all of us, it'll involve sacrificing some me time so that we can serve in church and bless others. For others, it could be with gospel priorities in mind, we make costly choices about where we live and what job we accept. And there'll be other costs that we can't control it might be rejection by family or friends. It could be the hostility of our neighbors. Or you might be looked over and work for a promotion because of what you believe. The point is, following Jesus involves service, it involves sacrifice, it involves cost. And if that's true, what is going to help us to follow Jesus? As it gets increasingly hard to follow Jesus in the years to come, how are we going to keep on going? It could be easy to give up. It could be easy to compromise. It could be easy to keep silent. So what is our motivation no matter the cost? I think it's the fact that we realize who we are and we're in need of mercy and Christ meets that need. That's what will sustain us. No matter the cost, we've got to remember that it's Jesus who first served us in a costly way and now we love and serve and follow him. And yet sometimes, if we're honest, we're not so enthusiastic about the costs of following Jesus. Instead, we're more like the disciples in chapter 10. We're concerned about getting ahead. We're concerned about our own agenda, and we want God just to play along with it. And we forget how undeserving we are. And therefore, when Jesus comes and, and he asks this question, what can I do for you? And if we think of what we would reply, the desires of our hearts and the answers we give, it's they're often a little bit messed up. But if we know ourselves, when Jesus asks, what can I do for you? We know we need mercy. And here's the good news, that King Jesus meets our need. And then in response, we follow him. We offer up our lives. Because remember, 
For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. We need mercy. King Jesus meets our need and we follow him. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. And we're reminded that we are people in need of mercy. And we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and we ask for mercy. We trust that Christ died on our behalf and rose again victorious. And we come pleading for your endless mercy. We thank you that your mercies are in you every morning. And we thank you for your word and how it challenges us to take up our cross, to go and follow you no matter the cost. And so we pray that we would have to the forefront of our minds as we leave here, that you would be changing us and making us more like Jesus, that you would be warming our hearts with that picture of Christ, our King, who is full of mercy. And in response, we would serve the King who has first served us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.